This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey everybody and welcome to Ozpol Snack Pod, the podcast where normally two of Australia's foremost political nobodies bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian politics and news with a side of crispy memes. Uh, my name's Noon and normally with me is my co-host Zach, but he is away again. So it's just me uh, again this week doing a half-length episode and before I get started I wanted to say a big thank you to Irrational Fear for uh, supporting us on Patreon. Um, you will get access to a monthly bonus episode, plus you can hang out on our Discord, and thanks for supporting the show. Um, yeah, actually, about the bonus episode, not 100% sure, it's obviously, like, nearly the end of the month, and, uh, I haven't recorded it yet, and haven't really discussed it with Zach, because, yeah, uh, yeah, so we don't, <laughs> don't know what's happening, probably not going to be out before the end of March, um, but maybe we'll give you two next month or something, so never fear, there will be more bonus content coming soon. So now I'm just going to dive straight into the entree, and uh, this week we're having um, steamed greens for entree, I guess. Uh, the greens have said that they're campaigning for a power-sharing arrangement with the Labour Party, um, which is interesting. So that means that uh, Adam Band, the leader of the greens, uh, came out to say that this election cycle they'll be campaigning for a hung parliament, which means that neither the Labour or the Liberal Party can make a majority. Uh, and where the Greens would be the quote-unquote kingmakers um, who would, like, decide that then the Labour Party would get their support and they would form government. Uh, you may remember that the Gillard government was famously a hung parliament and that led to her negotiating with the Greens and crossbenchers like Andrew Wilkie, for one. Um, and to be honest, this has basically always been the Greens' goal, right? Because they would, like, there's never been any chance of them forming a majority, uh, at least in the imminent future. Uh, so now they're just being upfront about it, which, you know, I personally find refreshing, but that said, I'm not sure it's really a super popular, like, concept with the electorate. I guess we will see. Um, yeah, I don't think people, like, hype about a hung parliament. I mean, I kind of am, but I'm a nerd who makes a politics podcast, so, you know, that's not really a reasonable assessment. Um... Yeah, so in the past, Labour has said they would refuse a power-sharing arrangement with the Greens. So uh, I'm thinking in particular Bill Shorten said this repeatedly in, in 2016. And look, this that is ridiculous for a few reasons. Uh, for one, it's definitely not true. Like, if the government could either form minority government with the Greens or refuse and go back to the polls, like, 100% they're taking the support from the Greens. And so, like, that's a great way to start off your term in office by breaking a promise. Um, though, to be clear, actually, I don't think the Labour Party this time have said that they would refuse it, which is good. But, you know, I anticipate that will happen at some point if the Greens keep trying to do this. Uh, but the other reason that it's, like, silly for the Labour Party to say that they would refuse it is that the Liberals are very good at saying that Labour is just, like, the Greens in a red shirt. Um, and Tony Abbott was, like, a master at it, but in general, I think it's a pretty easy line of attack for conservatives to make against Labour. So, yeah, Labour doesn't really gain anything by saying they wouldn't form a, a coalition with the Greens, because they piss off the people on the left between them and the Greens, and then they don't manage to convert any of the people between them and the Libs on the right. 
Um, so will this, like, announcement help the Greens? I think probably not really. I think they're likely to poll roughly 10% like they have for the last couple of elections. Um, and I think to get more than, than that, they're going to need to become more, like, culturally relevant or more, like, exciting in some way. And I don't think we want a hung parliament is either culturally, culturally relevant or exciting. So, I mean, to be fair, it's been front page news on several days. Uh, so, you know, that's probably good for the Greens, regardless of what it's about, you know. But I, I just, you know, it's okay. It's an entree. It's... That's kind of how I feel about it as a as a campaign tactic. It's an entree tactic. Anyway, okay, let's move on now. So the federal court has found that an Australian oil mining company owes millions of dollars to Indonesian seaweed farmers uh, because in 2009 the company, which is called PTTEP Australasia, which, you know, uh, you can always tell a company is a bunch of dirtbags when their name is completely unmemorable. Um, but they left an uncapped oil rig spewing oil and gas into the Timor Sea for 74 days before getting around to fixing it. So, it, to be clear, the oil well was in Australian waters, but the oil spilled out into uh, Indonesian waters and um, killed off crops of yeah thousands of Indonesian seaweed farmers. Um, and so PTTEP Australasia claimed that A, the oil could never have gotten into Indonesian waters, it wouldn't have gotten that far, and B, if it had, it would have, quote, disintegrated before it managed to cause any damage to the seaweed crops. And the judge found that that was A, wrong, and B, not true. Uh, so Morris Blackburn, which um, is in a, a Labour Party-affiliated law firm, represented a class action of about 15,000 Indonesian seaweed farmers. And the lead litigant was awarded more than 250 million rupiah, which is about 22,500 Australian dollars, which um, a quick Google tells me is about 20 years of an average Indonesian income. So that's great for that guy. And now the federal court is going to look into how much all the other seaweed farmers who are involved in the class action should receive. Um, and Morris Blackburn reckons it's going to run into the millions. Um, so good. These people are getting, yeah, some some compensation for uh, complete destruction of their livelihood and you know like environment um yeah the the lead litigant he said that his crops had just like completely failed for a couple of years and still weren't back up to how they were before the spill so like it's it, it's been that was 2009 so that's like 12 years ago and he's getting 20 years worth of payout for it so like Good, that seems like a, an appropriate amount. Okay, now I'm going to move on to the First Nations story and content warning. I'm going to talk about people who have died recently. I'm not going to use their names or go into a huge amount of detail, but um, yeah, I'm going to discuss that story. Uh, and yes, I mentioned last time that three Indigenous people had died in police custody this month, but in fact a fourth man has now died in uh, the last week while being pursued by police. And it's just awful. Uh, like, yeah, four, four people in three weeks is horrifying. And um, here's a quote from Lydia Thorpe. To wake up this morning and hear another death in custody 
is another stab in the heart. We feel this is blackfellas right across this country. My people are sick of losing people. We're still trying to survive in this country, and they're killing us in the prison system. And, you know, I don't have any hot take about this story. It's tragic and disgusting and shameful for this country. Um, and, you know, we say every week there's a genocide going on and, like, this this is it. Um, and I guess one thing I wanted to say is that when I'm reading about this, there's this little extra kick in the teeth in every single article about any topic about Indigenous deaths in custody or, or over-representation in jails. And it mentions the 1991 report into Indigenous deaths in custody. And there have been dozens of other reports and inquiries since then, but the government never implements any of the recommendations. And at this point, it's just so, like... I don't know. It's, it's, it's easier to defend inaction than action. You know, when it causes harm, you can be like, oh, I didn't do anything, instead of, like, I did the wrong thing. Like, it, it's easier to defend not doing anything. And it's easier to say that not implementing recommendations is not doing anything. To be clear, not doing anything is also, like, fucking evil when people are dying. But we've had this report for decades, and it's important to frame it as a deliberate, active choice to not implement those policies. It's not a lack of action. It is an action with the fail... It's an action that they choose not to implement reforms to the prison system. Like, every time cabinet meets and doesn't try to fix this shit... That is them choosing to kill indigenous people. And, yeah, I, it's just, it, it's awful. And I think it's just really important to remember that. Whenever you read one of these stories, and it's, it mentions these inquiries, just get, like, especially angry about it. And, anyway, yeah. Okay, that's the end of that story. I'm going to move on to another awful story, which also involves indigenous people being systematically discriminated against. Fashy Australia. This is going to be a Fashy Oz slash mains. Um, and we're having NDIS burgers. I guess. I'll think of something better before the time I upload it. Okay. So on Friday uh, this week, the nine newspapers reported a leak that they received of a 300-page review into proposed changes to the NDIS. Um, So here's a quote from the article. The proposed federal government overhaul of the scheme is poised to concentrate more power in the hands of the minister through rule changes and dilute the influence of state and territory governments, which contribute almost half of the annual funding. The overhaul also canvassed removing the contentious reasonable and necessary test for the provision of support and services. And um, there's a number of other problems that have been, like, shown in this report. Uh, so, to be clear, um, the this is a, a secret report to the government. The government has been like, we want to make these changes to the NDIS. They've sent it off to the NDIA, the National Disability Insurance Agency. So, they're the government bureaucratic organ that runs the NDIS. Um, and... They've sent it off to the NDIA and presumably to, like, some other specialists and consultants and whatever, and they've all given feedback on these changes. And the 
the changes, as this quote from the ABC that I just read showed, they want to concentrate power in the hands of the minister and remove this reasonable and necessary test. Uh, and there's a number of other problems with it, so um, changes in how certain disabilities are defined that might uh, exclude people with uh, conditions like fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and acquired brain, acquired brain injuries. Um, and it would also make it easier to remove funding from people in prison um, which is sort of the connection I was thinking of about systematically discriminating against indigenous people, and I, I'll go into um, more detail about that in a sec. Um, and another proposed change would be to standardize the process of application in a way that might help some people, but also has some really big and obvious flaws. Okay, so I'm going to go over some of these points in a bit more detail. So first, this thing about reasonable and necessary. So this is part of the definition for what the NDIS uses for what they will fund. So for example, uh, for a deaf person, it might be reasonable and necessary for them to have an Auslan interpreter at their doctor's appointment, but it wouldn't be reasonable and necessary for them to have a sweet Porsche. So the government will pay for the interpreter, which is reasonable and necessary, and they won't pay for the Porsche, which is not reasonable and necessary. And so like, this is a pretty good definition there's definitely problems with it as like all legislation always has problems with it any of these definitions are going to be imperfect and um i don't want to go into a whole lot of detail about some of the issues with it but like you have to kind of, like one of the things you have to prove that it's reasonable and necessary and that's pretty difficult um but there's a lot of problems with it but it's like reasonable and necessary it's hard to see how that could be a particular like in the list of possible definitions for what should be funded it seems like that couldn't be really bad, right? Like, it's inherently reasonable and necessary as a definition. I don't know. I, th I think there's something funny about scrapping that somehow. Anyway, the um, so the report, uh, one of the things they looked into and responded to was this idea of scrapping this reasonable and necessary definition. And as one comment put it, it would, quote, remove both the floor and the ceiling of the funding. So that is to say some people would get much less funding because what they were, like they're no longer entitled to reasonable and necessary things. And then on the other hand, people would be getting way too much funding because they're not constrained by what's reasonable and necessary. And this is just such a bad idea that I suspect, and to be clear, I have no evidence for this whatsoever, that this idea was floated personally by Stuart Robert, the minister for the NDIS, who you may recall from our episode uh, In the Footsteps of Jesus, where I read his book about the Bible and made fun of him. Um, not for being religious, but for writing an awful, awful book. Uh, it was truly terrible. Um, which explains why he does such a bad job at everything else as well. He's Anyway, I think that... Stuart Robert proposed this idea, and the reason that I think that is that he was mad that a court had found that uh, it was reasonable and necessary for an NDIS participant to hire a sex worker. And he, may, I think we reported on this uh, a couple months ago when it happened, um, and Stuart Robert made some shitty comments about, you know, how the government wouldn't blah 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 pay for consensual sex and other evil things like that, and that he would seek to close the quote-unquote heavy quotes loophole that allowed someone to access what the courts determined was a reasonable and necessary service. And so, like, he obviously can't change the legislation so that sex work is no longer reasonable and necessary, but he can change it so reasonable and necessary is no longer the rule. So anyway, that's just my guess about why they spent 
as long as they did on this suggestion. Um, but uh, to be fair, he has actually come out since this leak on Friday to say that the reasonable and necessary thing will not be changed. Um, he hasn't commented on most of the rest of the stuff, though. Um, he did talk a bit of shit about how this was just like one of 78 drafts of the legislation and that these reports would, quote, unleash necessary concern, which, counterpoints to it, maybe it's unleashing reasonable and necessary concern. So think about that. Okay, so that was the issue about reasonable and necessary, which, as I say, seems like that's not going to be actually implemented in legislative changes. But um, uh, another point of concern was a change in the definition of a psychosocial disability and the way that cognitive impairments would be counted in the NDIS's, like, assessment of disabilities. And I couldn't actually find any specific details on what these changes would mean. Um, but the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age have claimed that the comment said or suggested that some people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, FASD, and acquired brain injuries, ABIs, um, that they would no longer be eligible for NDIS. So not, pr probably not everyone with those conditions, but that uh, it would remove funding from some people who are currently eligible for funding under the, with those conditions. And several uh, community orgs have called on Stuart Robert to guarantee that people with FASD will continue to receive NDIS funding, which he has not yet um, promised will be the case. Because obviously, like his main goal as a liberal minister is to stop spending money on disabled people because he hates them. Uh, which, you know, this is a sidebar, I didn't write any notes about this, but like, why is this in Fasci Australia noon? Well, the Nazis murdered disabled people. Um, fascism hates disabled people, and so does capitalism. Um, and, yep, that's why. That little Fasci history. Um, sorry, I realised that wasn't a very sophisticated analysis of, you know... Nazi discrimination against disabled people, but like, yeah, I just just wanted to draw that connection explicitly. Okay, so to go on, this article from the Sydney Morning Herald also uh, says that the changes in the legislation would seek to make it easier to remove funding from people in prison, and this is disgusting because people with disabilities are heavily overrepresented in prison. So about thirty percent of prisoners have disabilities compared to about eighteen percent of the general population. So nearly twice as many are in jail, not not numerically, but percentage-wise, nearly twice as many. So, um, and this is a, a quote from the ABC, the Australian Centre for Disability Law estimated that 95% of First Nations people charged with criminal offences who appear in court have an intellectual disability, a cognitive impairment, or a mental illness. So, we know that there's huge overrepresentation of Indigenous people, there's also huge overrepresentation of people with disabilities, there's a huge, huge, huge overrepresentation of disabled people, uh, disabled Indigenous people, I should say. And so, this is to tie it back into what I was saying in the previous segment, this is another form of systemic discrimination that is an active step to remove funding, well-being, safety, security from First Nations people, and instead to lock them in jail and then to kill them, because we know that Indigenous people are wildly more likely to die in jail or police custody. And like, okay, like, even from a, a free market point of view, right, like, 
giving people more funding and access to services will make them want to commit less crimes because they'll have more access to stuff. So they won't be in jail as much, and then they won't be killed by the police. It's just like this circular... Like, every step the government takes is designed... Seems designed to kill indigenous people. It's... Even when it... It's actually being presented as something to kill disabled people. It still kills indigenous people. It's a truly incredible mechanism that our government has organized to do that. It's... Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I got a bit worked up and off track there. But another point that I want to make is... And this is another quote from the ABC. People with ABIs, acquired brain injuries, make up about 2% of the general population, but they're hugely overrepresented in Australia's prisons. An audit of Victoria's prisons in 2011 found 42% of male prisoners and 33% of females were diagnosed with ABIs. Sorry about the gender binary there. It's the ABC uh, and whoever did the study. But yeah, like... This measure that removes funding from like that makes it easier to take NDIS away from people in prison undermines the whole point of the NDIS which is to give funding to people with disabilities because we know there's more people with disabilities in prison it's like illogical to take it away from that it would be like trying to stop covid by only giving the vaccination to people who are working from home and not the people who are going into workplaces or something like that right it like it completely like, I don't know. It's it, it's just terrible. Okay, so that's the issue about FASD and ABIs. The last thing that I want to talk about is this thing about the standardized panel for assessing people. So the idea here is that there will be a panel of independent experts and uh, people who are trying to get access to NDIS funding will be assessed by this panel to see if they qualify. And so the pro here, which is what the government is pushing, is that this would mean people who can't afford to see specialists and get tests done and get reports written and blah, 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 uh, would be able to get access to specialist medical assessments and then be able to get onto the scheme, which totally that would be good if that is what the outcome would be. Um, the con, which a lot of other people are pointing out, is that it's a very um, uncomfortable and dehumanizing experience for a disabled person to go and have to, like, prove they're disabled to a whole bunch of strangers whose job is essentially to find out that you're faking it, if you know what I mean. And, like, I, I have a friend who was applying for NDIS and who masks their symptoms a lot and I think a lot of disabled people do this especially people whose disabilities aren't visible or aren't always visible and you want to like yeah the people people mask and hide their symptoms and even when you know you're going to a doctor to like show them your disability, you still get into this kind of social game of, like, behaving appropriately and trying to be normal or whatever, and, like, that's a defense mechanism that a lot of disabled people have developed to, like, survive in a world that hates disabled people and doesn't cater for disabled people, but when you go to this panel of strangers whose job is to be like, well, you don't seem that disabled, masking is, like, not it's a huge problem in terms of the outcome. And so, like, I I think 
a lot of disabled people value having their own specialists to advocate for them and to go to these panel or like not to go to these panels but to like submit the evidence being like yeah I am a specialist in whatever this disability is and I can confirm this person has this disability and when I got an NDIS I had to go and see an independent specialist who confirmed that my diagnosis was like actually about me or something like it was a bit unclear what they were doing it did seem like a bit of a pointless rigmarole so like but you know that's government programs right and like that wasn't too bad, but, you know, I that was my experience, and I'm sure a lot of other people have had much worse experiences of going to those independent specialists. And to think about going to a whole panel, and that being the only evidence that's considered, that seems like a real problem. And, like, the government's like, oh no, some people can't afford specialists. I know what we'll do. We'll make everyone go through this same dehumanizing process. And it's like, no! No, hold it. There's a very obvious solution, which is to make healthcare actually universal and, like, to provide specialist care uh, with Medicare and, like, to not have huge out-of-pocket expenses that you get reimbursed part of some of the time or whatever. Like, just just have, like, universal healthcare and... Ah, uh, then everyone could go see a specialist and we wouldn't have to have this fucking panel. Anyway, okay. That's most of that story, and I just want to finish up by saying that Bill Shorten is the Labour Shadow Minister for NDIS, and I think, and he he was the minister when it was implemented originally, and I think he did a pretty good job in consulting with people with disabilities, and uh, these changes that have been made, or that are being proposed by Stuart Robert, have been made with zero community consultation, and I always say on the show that community consultation is a crock of shit, and it is, but at least you can make an effort to pretend that you're trying to listen, and sometimes it gets through, as at least some people think it has with the NDIS, which obviously, like, has huge flaws, but, like, is a big improvement from the situation before. And that was all done with disabled people being involved on the boards and on the decision-making councils and, you know, disabled, like, disability organisations participating. And all of this shit has been done in-house, secretly, by the government, trying to get rid of protections and trying to find ways to cut spending. And, uh, like, I often talk shit about the Labour Party, but they're just clearly much less evil than the Liberal Party, and the NDIS is uh, a really good example of that. Um, that said, Bill Shorten, still the Labour Shadow Minister, he really needs to fire whoever his, like, 23-year-old media advisor is, who told him to call it a king hit to the NDIS um like I feel like king hit discourse is a couple of years old and there's a whole like weed thing there that I feel like maybe Bill Shorten doesn't know about um yeah I mean there's he called Scott Morrison a cuck is that right I wish Zach was here he could, he could tell me but yeah I'm pretty sure that's right and yeah Fire that guy. Get a get an adult media advisor, man. Okay, that's most of the business done. So now it's time for shit post of the week.
and actually, this is kind of a uh, a hefty shit post of the week. I've got I've got two posts. One's a, a real shit post, and one's just like high quality meme content. So I'm awarding shit post of the week to Christopher Hawkins uh, for a golden gay time meme. Um, and so this meme, it had a picture of a golden gay time with a bite taken out of it, and it says, "Tap the golden gay time if you're against political correctness." And so, of course, I tapped it on my phone and popped up down below. There's a picture of Scott Morrison and it says, The Golden Gay Time controversy is a manufactured culture war that nobody, including the LGBTIQ plus community, asked for. It's simply a cheap, hollow distraction from the LNP producing a toxic working environment for women while Scott Morrison takes zero action on his own party harboring rapists while victim-blaming survivors of sexual assault. Yeah. That is correct, and it's also a, a good meme. An excellent use of the format, the tap this format. I feel like this is good. It's good boomer bait as well. Like I, f- I feel like people would tap it if they are against political correctness. So good job. I like that. Uh, I'm, de- I'm going to be able to post this on Facebook as it currently is, but I'm going to have to do something about it for the Instagram post or something because, you know, you don't have the tap. It's all right. It's my problem. I'll deal with it. And, look, this whole Golden Gate Time is a PSYOP thing, uh, you know, I could easily believe it either way. I could believe that there are uh, some gays that don't like it, but as many people in OzPol shitposting have said, uh, it, it's a queer icon. Um, and I fucking love Golden Gate Times, they're delicious. But it does, it, it could also totally be, yeah, a, a, a PSYOP, some people, like, deliberately fucking around to create division in the queer community and or or like against the queer community and it actually there's this other thing going on and this is a kind of a heavy story that is i guess in meme news not in australian news but we don't do that much meme news and zach's away so he can't stop me (laughs) um but about super straight do you guys know about this it's really fucked um I guess there's a content warning for, like, cook transphobia. Really fucked, awful transphobia in the next minute or two. So I'm sorry about that. Um, But, yeah, Super Straight is this thing that some 4chan Nazis, neo-Nazis on the internet, came up with. And it's a, like quote-unquote sexuality and they're trying to claim it's a marginalized sexuality and it means you're straight but you don't sleep with trans people um so like uh, i kind of don't even want to go into the detail of that because it's so gross but also i'm sure some people listening don't fully understand about what i mean so i think i will so if you don't want to hear about this just yeah skip forward 30 seconds i will put time codes for this uh in, in the show notes um, like, a cis man, a super straight cis man might want to sleep with cis women, but not trans women. That's, that's what it means. Yeah. And this is a really common reactionary thing of like, oh, you're trying to make us sleep with trans people or whatever. And like, shut the fuck up. No, no trans people want to sleep with you. So just maybe don't. But also, yeah, this super straight thing it's now people are trying to like come into queer spaces and be like i identify as super straight and you got to respect that and if you don't it's queer phobic and blah 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 and it's obvious nonsense right it's obvious complete bullshit but it's really fucking annoying and takes up a lot of time and energy and it's really upsetting 
Um, and it's organized by literal Nazis, and there are a couple of clues for that. One is that the orange and black flag is the same colors as the Nazi battle flag, and the other is that it's fucking SS, right? Super straight. But also, transphobes only have one joke. You know, I identify as a he an attack helicopter. Like, it's the same shit. It's so weak, um, but it's also really fucking exhausting and damaging, as is this Golden Gate Time thing potentially. Again, I'm totally willing to, res like, believe that there are plenty of queer people who don't like Golden Gate Time. Like, I don't know anything about the people who've organized the petition. I just, while everyone's talking about this anti-queer psyop, I just wanted to talk about another international, organized Nazi anti-queer psyop. So, yeah, sorry about um, ruining your, your shitpost of the week with that heavy stuff. I said the business was done. Anyway. Uh, and, and there's this one other one, um, which was shared into the group. Uh, it's a post from at Slayer Rules underscore 420 on Twitter. And sure enough, like, as you might expect from Slayer Rules underscore 420, it's a picture of Scott Morrison smoking a Gatorade bong in Parliament. And uh, I just wanted to give an honorary mention to AJ, shitposter extraordinaire in Ospol shitposting, who said, no way Skomo can rip a bong without Jenny showing him how. And, you know, I think that really sums up the attitude of the nation, AJ. So thank you. Okay, that's it. That's the end of the show. Thank you all so much for listening. As I said, next week, Zach will be back. Um, I am going to get to my pup date about Bagel in a minute. But first, I'm going to once again shill for Patreon. Uh, uh, as I said up top, our bonus episode this month hasn't happened. I'm really sorry about that. As I said, you know, it's been a weird couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to chat to Zach about it this week and we'll let you know what we're going to be doing. Maybe we'll do two bonus episodes this month or something. So, yeah, um, sorry about that, patrons. But uh, we've, we've got stuff uh, cooking for you. We'll, we'll, we'll get it out to you soon. Okay. Um, oh, and uh, share us on Facebook and Twitter. We have those. We have social medias. Um, send us to your friends. I say us. It's just me this week. Send me to your friends. Um, uh post memes to our page and group. If you're not in Ospol shitposting, you can head over there, facebook.com forward slash Ospol shitposting um, and see some sweet memes, answer the questions, or you won't get in. Okay, now, time for the pup date. Now it's time for a pup date. So, uh, I don't know what's going on with Dante. Uh, last I heard, he was being very annoying and not helpful during Zach's shitty couple weeks. But uh, um, with Bagel, uh, we're actually currently looking for a housemate at the moment. Well, I mean... Bagel doesn't know it, but the the humans in the house are looking for a housemate. Uh, someone's moving out. And um, so we've had a whole lot of strangers over to the house. And it's this real difficult thing of, like, I can like someone a whole bunch, think they'll be a great match, and then Bagel will just be like, rah, 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 I'm going to bite your legs off. And thankfully, that didn't really happen with any of them. He did get a bit worried about one person, which is uh, unfortunate because I thought he'd been totally chill. And then his, his behavior like went much worse very quickly. So that's a bit concerning. Um, but for the most part, he's been really good. And, and so that's been really lovely because it's not always easy or um, possible to introduce him to people. Uh, and yeah, it's been a whole lot of people in the last couple of days. So yeah, that's, uh, that's been really lovely. He's been a, a, a very good boy. Um, yeah. Okay, well, that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Um, catch you next week with Zach. And uh, keep on crunching in the crunch crunch. <laughs>